This is The Secret Life of Writers. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I'll be speaking with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art. When I was a kid, I loved stories and I loved books. And when I understood that stories and books weren't weren't like rocks and trees, that they weren't things that had always been there, but that people made them up, straight away I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that, yeah. Today I'm speaking with Claire Massoud, one of my favourite writers and also, rather thrillingly, one of the first writers I've published under our new literary imprint called Tableau Tales. Claire is a novelist of unnerving talent, as the New York Times book review described. She's the author of seven works of fiction, including the best-selling books The Emperor's Children, The Woman Upstairs, The Burning Girl, as well as a book of essays which I found utterly captivating called Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. Claire has received Guggenheim and Radcliffe Fellowships and the Strauss Living Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, among many other accolades. Claire and I were initially in touch when she agreed to give the closing address of Sydney Writers' Festival, which I was directing at the time, and she gave a talk around imaginary homelands, also touching on her years in Sydney as a child. This period in her life comes into her book of essays and it inspired Claire's novella, A Dream Life, which we are lucky enough to publish. Geraldine Brooks said it was witty, arch and acutely observed and Helen Garner described it as a perfect frolic of a book puffed on breezes of beauty and wit. It waltzes you through a little fear, a little darkness and tips you out refreshed and laughing into the sun. What a beautiful description. Claire, hello. It is such a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, Gemma, it's such a pleasure for me. I'm just so thrilled that you're to speak to you and that you're publishing the book. And uh, I'm just so grateful. Thank you. Oh, it's such an honour. It really is. And I have to say, after all the emailing, it's just lovely to, to actually talk. Are, are you a little bit sentimental like I am and sometimes miss that kind of long time ago when everyone actually called each other rather than emailing or texting as it is now, isn't it? I know. I well I, I miss telephone calls. I miss in person conversations in yes. the last in the last couple of years. <laughs> I feel as though everything's been turned on its head. And it's true that we have Zoom and so on, but then when you actually see people again in person, it's completely different. Mm. You know? It's the best. I, I feel I almost feel kind of too much emotion. I, I kind of want to give them a hug or, you know, touch their shoulder inappropriately. I mean, that sounds bad, but <laughs> it's just after the lack of contact, you know? Well, I, I'm very big into the into the fact that we're animals, that we are embodied beings. And, and the combination of the pandemic, but also the prevalence of tech, right, of, of doing things on screens, people are very, uh, I think, readily can forget that we are actually animals, but we are, and, and physical contact and eye contact and, you know, being in the presence of someone, those are very real and affecting things. It's not quite the same just to speak or text or whatever. Now, just just on that, can you describe where you are in the world and also where you're teaching and just contextualize for everyone listening so, and also so we can imagine it? Sure. I, I, uh, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is strictly speaking, separate from Boston because it's on the other side of the river, but there's a river between these two, the town and the city, but they're essentially 
you know, essentially contiguous or, or run into one another, basically. And I teach at, at Harvard University. I teach creative writing mostly to undergraduates, but there are also graduate students sometimes in the classes and sometimes people who work at the university are in the classes. And um, and I teach fiction writing there. Can you also go backwards and give, it a, give us a little bit of an idea of the different places you've lived um there's there was a expression that you have or just a description in your book of essays where you say you describe yourself as a mongrel a hybrid made of many things and you say my childhood was itinerant my identity complicated so please tell us more um so my mother was canadian anglophone from toronto and my father was french everybody thinks then that I was, I am French Canadian, <laughs> but I'm not French Canadian. Um, I'm French and Canadian. Uh, and my father's family was actually Pienois. They were, he was brought up in Algiers, mm. you know, and, um, or much of his childhood in Algiers. And my parents met, uh, when they were studying and they married and it, it was sort of a funny thing. Cause my sister was born in, I have one sister and she's older and she was born in France and, and I was born in the United States. Um, and then for my father's work, we moved to Sydney. And so my childhood was spent, uh, I always say the happiest years of my childhood were spent in Sydney. And then we moved to Toronto and we were there for several years. And then my parents, uh, my father was transferred to New York. And so my parents moved to Connecticut, at which point I went to boarding school. Mm. Uh, and I went to high school and university in the United States in undergrad. And then I, I went to do a graduate course in England where I met my husband. Did you both immediately click or how was that initial meeting between you? Well, you know, it was the eve of my 21st birthday. Oh, was it? And he had, we had a mutual friend, the a friend of mine from university who had gone before me to study in England and had become friends with James. And um, he's a writer too, his uh, nonfiction writer named Andrew Solomon. And he had told us to look each other up. And so James came and knocked on my door. And then when he discovered that it was about to be my birthday, he went off and found a bottle of wine and another American. Um, so it wouldn't so it wouldn't be a date. <laughs> um, and we drank the bottle of wine to celebrate my birthday. And then the next day I had friends, American friends coming from London. And one of them, uh, who's still a good friend, stood in the entryway to the college and there was a, you know, that so the sort of group photo with everybody. And James was in that photo moving. His head was moving. So he was a blur. And my, and my friend pointed to the blurry figure and said, who's that guy? And I said, oh, I met that guy last night. I want to marry that guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think I really meant it, but I, but I, I mean, not that I, you, you know what I mean? I, I wasn't. It sounds so romantic, Claire, I have to say that just, yeah. So you said that so because said you both that. get on really well, was it? Yeah, or? because, well, because he'd been so, he'd been so charming and, and sweet oh. um, and, and fun and fun. Yeah. And, and so then, and, and then you did. And then eventually I did. I did. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we, the, the night I also, I, I love to tell people that the night of our, our first kiss was the night of the high wind when seven oaks became one oak and a fisherman was killed by a flying beach hut. There was a, oh. there was a famous uh, hurricane in 1987, in October of 1987, that was a sort of uncommonly dramatic storm across the UK. Um, Derek Jarman writes about it in his diaries oh. because he was out in his little house by the 
edge of the water. And I think it must have been very dramatic there. But it is sort of a famous storm. And um, that was the night of our first kiss. So I would jokingly say the earth moved. (laughs) (laughs) I like the sound of that. Now, I imagine these kind of things are kind of quite knotted together and hard to separate, really. But when did you first start thinking that you might want to be a writer? Oh, I, I always wanted to, I mean, from the time I knew it was a thing, you know, when I was a kid, I loved stories and I loved books. And when I understood that stories and books weren't weren't like rocks and trees, that they weren't things that had always been there, but that people made them up, mm. then straight away I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that. Yeah. I liked, you say at one point, I could not not try. Yeah. Which was a nice way of putting it really. Yeah. Well, I always say that to my students, if you know, if you can be as happy not writing, don't, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it is a strange, quixotic thing to do because it looks to the world like wasting your time. I mean, maybe it is wasting your time, but you're, you're basically saying to your friends or your family, no, I, I can't leave my room because I have to um, pull something out of my head that doesn't exist in the world and that nobody really needs, you know, so people are strangely resistant to that. You know, uh, as a, as an as an activity, <laughs> they they think that's not um, they they often think that's not what people should be doing. Mm. You could be cleaning your room or washing some dishes or earning some money or raking a lawn. You know, there's a lot of stuff you could be doing, and so the only reason to do it is because you can't not because you really want to. You know. But there's places also in your book of essays where you talk about the absolute joy of a um, of a beautiful sentence, you know, one sentence that feels exactly right, for example. Well, um, I could never do a, a Rubik's Cube. I follow <laughs> someone on um, on Instagram who's obviously very good at doing crosswords and, and they post, apparently, if you do the New York Times crossword and get all the words, they send you some little, I don't know, graphic that says, congratulations, you got all the words. I I can't, I couldn't do that. I've never, I've never been able to do the whole crossword, but, but with a sentence you do, it is like a Rubik's cube or, you know, it is like a puzzle in a way to try to create the most uh, effective, lucid, precise version of what you're trying to say and that's something that we recognize at the level of the essay or at the level of the story or, mm. you know, in a sort of macro level. But it actually comes down also to the sentence. You can't have the essay that says exactly what you want it to say unless you have, unless it's made up of the sentences that are doing that. But there are a few that you also take out that have that have impacted you um, and that have stayed in your mind, which, which were really, really beautifully expressed I thought and one of them was the T.S. Eliot quote these are the fragments I've shored against my ruins it's an incredible sentence isn't it yes you know I've I've always been fascinated by the fact that it's ruins right I was in my head think it will be ruin but it's ruins right it's the ruins of of my my father used to say culture is what's left when you've forgotten everything And as if, and I do with time believe this as I forget more and more, right, that there's a sort of maceration, right, that experiences and cultural experiences and human relationship and everything is sort of gets mushed up and forgotten inside us in the way 
in the way that, you know, the leaves, well, maybe maybe not so much in Sydney, but here in the northeast of the United States, in the autumn, in the fall, all the leaves fall off the trees, and then it rains, and it's like soggy cereal on the, on the ground. It's sort of, you know, everything mushed up together. And I sort of think that's what the ruins are. And then there are sort of specific things that you, you know, like the flotsam, you know, the flotsam and jetsam, they're, they're the specific things that you sort of save that don't just vanish into that mush. Talking about not vanishing into mush and and writing and saving fragments really, your paternal grandfather wrote a memoir for you and your sister. He did. Which which I thought was quite extraordinary when you discussed it in the book. Did you get to read it when you were younger and when you were just starting to have your own aspirations for writing? And also, was it good? Could he write? Tell me more about this memoir. So, so you know, I didn't read it when I was younger. When I was younger, he also wrote an unpublished novel and an unpublished book of stories. And when I was in my early 20s, he gave me those to read. Uh, he was writing the memoir, which is 1,500 handwritten pages, mm. um, through much of our childhoods. He was retired, but it was as if he had an office job. He would go up to his study and and work on this. And, and it covers the years 1928, when my grandparents married, to 1946, the year after the war ended. And I did not, I read sort of little excerpts. Uh, there was a sort of digest, maybe 100 pages that he put together and had typed up and Xeroxed for family members. And I read that. Mm. But I, I didn't read the whole thing until a couple of years ago, when I had a leave from teaching, and I just spent the whole semester uh, reading and, and taking notes. And, and my husband said, you'd go much faster if you didn't take all those notes. And and I said, well, I don't expect to read it again entire, you know. <laughs> it took a long time to read it. So I took the notes so that I can find things again without having to read the whole thing. Just back to how, how you know, your kind of writing trajectory, Claire, how did you end up getting published for the first time? Oh, um, that's a funny story. I think after I studied in England, I came back and I started an MFA program in the United States at Syracuse, which has a very eminent uh, creative writing program. And, and now the writer George Saunders teaches there and Mary Carr teaches there and Dana Spiata. I mean, it's a wonderful amazing. And it was then a wonderful group of writers also. But I was lonely and forlorn um, oh. because James was in England and, you know, I was living on my stipend and I, I didn't have a car. Oh. Everything, it's one of those suburban, to get to the supermarket, you needed a car. So I, right. I, got, I bought my food at the convenience store, not a lot of fruit. And the weather is terrible. It's very northerly. Oh. That There's a lot of snow. And I so I dropped out and I went back to the UK. And what with one thing and another, I, I ended up working at the Guardian newspaper on the women's page. And I helped out with literary pieces. And so I, I met, you know, I would be setting up interviews for other people to do with authors and so on. And through that, I, I met a number of people in, in publishing and, and I would say, oh, I'm working on a novel. I'm working on a novel. And they'd say, oh, send it when you're finished. And so I did. And, you know, only one person said yes. And she's to this day, my British editor. Oh, wow. But you only needed one person to say yes. So, and she's <laughs> wonderful. And I'm, I am forever grateful to her. Mm. Claire, did you have dreams of being a writer versus the actual, the hard reality of being a writer? Oh, sure. You know, 
I mean, I wonder, I wonder about balancing parenting and your journalism and, and teaching with writing as well. Um, you know, I think that's got harder as I've got older and more tired. (laughs) (laughs) You know, now all I want is a nap. Um, (laughs) I can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. You're in a moment when you can relate to that. Um, you know, that'll get easier. Then it'll get harder again. Um, Mm. but I think, um, you know, when I was young, I, I, when I was, sort of a teenager, you know, it was, it was a a very accepted thing to say, you know, no, nobody who wanted to be a writer, especially no woman should have children, right? That was the sort of historical ondi, the kind of accepted truth. And, and if you look back over history, of course, almost all the writers that we know of, women writers did not have children, you know, from, I don't know, Mrs. Gaskell to George Eliot to Elizabeth Barrett Browning to, you know, Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield and on and on and on and on. Elizabeth Bowen, no children, no children, no children. Mm. And then in, in my mother's generation, lots of people suddenly did have children. And that that was something to look at and, and sort of take heart from, you know, that uh, Alice Monroe had children and Mavis Gallant did not, but Alice Monroe had children and Carol Shields had children and Margaret Atwood had children and, you know, the poet Dre Graham has children. I mean, she's younger than my parents, but, you know, um, it's something that people just made a decision, you know, we believe you can do this. Mm. And and there are sacrifices, right? There's a big sacrifice of time. There, there are only so many hours in a day. And my feeling about about some of those things. I feel about having children. More life is more life. Mm. And you learn more and you know more and you love more. And who would ever want to reduce that, right? That's, mm. but it is certainly true. I remember this is several years ago doing a, a, a sort of event at, at the New York Public Library. And I said, well, who, I mean, who has in your, in the audience, who, who has in your life three hours at a stretch to read a book? Oh. And like two thirds of the people in the audience put up their hands and I was like, oh, really? oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, who are those people who get to- I miss those days. Right, oh, yeah. right. You know, and and but I don't, as you say, yeah. right? But it's a, but it, but then you think of all the days in which you know, in which you might have read for three hours, and instead, instead you were you know running to the store for more milk or changing a, a nappy or whatever. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's a different it's a different thing. And can you take us back to when you wrote the novella A Dream Life in the American Library in Paris? So tell us where it came from and and how it happened. Well, I had this idea that I wanted to write a triptych of three novellas and that they would be, that they would be, I guess, I suppose the thematic link was displacement, Mm. right? That was sort of the idea that they would be very different and set in different places. And I did publish the two novellas that are in the book, The Hunters, um, but I never sent to my agent or editor, um, this novella, A Dream Life, for sort of complicated reasons. I got anxious about it and I put it in a drawer. But, and of course, looking back, I think, how did we manage to afford that? <laughs> but we had, I had been in the autumn of, I was it from January or February to March or April, I was in Paris. And the autumn before I'd been at a, we had been at a residency, La Napoule, which is uh, outside Cannes. And there's an art foundation there. And so I had started working on the on the novellas there, and then was working on them in this time in Paris. And I joined the American Library because the apartment that we rented was very very small, <laughs> and it wasn't really going to be possible for both of us. I mean, yeah, 
No. So I joined the American Library, and every day I would go there and sit sit at one of the tables. And and it was also, for me, a a wonderful time of literary discovery. I remember now why I was looking for Bernanos, I don't know, but I was looking for Diary of a Country Priest on the shelf at the American Library, and that's how I discovered Thomas Bernhardt. Mm. The books were slim. They were inviting. I took them off the shelf. I, I read uh, I read The Loser in an afternoon sitting at a table in the American Library. But it was it was for me like a, a dream come true. All my life I had wanted, my dream had always been to live in Paris and be a writer. And strangely, those three months are the... <laughs> <laughs> so far, that's that's the only amount of time I've managed to live in Paris and be a writer. But I really was, and I and I and I was living in my imagination. I was revisiting uh, a fictional version of this time of my childhood in in Sydney. Mm. So it was a wonderful it was a wonderful experience. So, can you describe the book in your own words, Claire? Um, so so. As I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of conception had been about displacement. And at the center of this uh, novella is Alice Armstrong, who is a, a young mother of two girls and, and a wife in a sort of old-fashioned way. The, the novella is set at the beginning of the 1970s. And the family, uh, her husband, has been uh, moved to Sydney for work, given a promotion. And, um, and she of course, the family comes with him. And a little bit like being a, a vicar's wife, you know, I always wondered whoever signed up to be the vicar's wife or now the vicar's husband or the vicar's spouse. I, <laughs> it's not something people put on their in first grade when they're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? You, you don't say you want to be the spouse of somebody mm-hmm. doing a job. But in that sort of way, she finds she has a job she didn't expect, which is running the household of this fancy house that they have that they have ended up in. And for the first time in her life, she has people working for her, you know, and working to take care of the house. And she has to organize parties. And and she sort of, on the one hand, it feels surreal and strange. And on the other hand, for a while, she sort of falls in love with it and kind of gets into that role. But um, it's a strange one. And she encounters some rum figures, including a, a housekeeper who moves in uh, and lives in the house with the family for a while. Claire, would you please read an extract? My pleasure. So I'll read, it's a section from quite close to the beginning when the Armstrongs have just arrived. The Americans were dumbfounded by their new home. The four of them had left behind a cramped two-bedroom apartment on New York's Upper East Side, whose chief advantage had been the view, available from the kitchen window with much bobbing and craning, of a silver swatch of the East River caught between two massive modern buildings like their own. The little girls had never known anything else, had had considered houses with staircases and unfolding rooms to be a novelty of grandparenthood. Their mother's parents in Buffalo lived in such a place, while their father's mother had sold her marital home upon her husband's death and retreated to a small apartment not unlike theirs in Chicago. Upon arrival then in the Deeds residence, Chateau Deeds, as the father jokingly dubbed it, a name that would live in their family lore forever, the two girls ran squealing from room to room, They clattered along the broad parquet hall and peered into the great drawing room with its alcove study and foggy drapes, into the paneled dining room, the morning room, the library. They tumbled through the conservatory in a giggling sweep and back to the hall where they paused in bafflement at the green baize door until their mother pushed it ajar, allowing them the run of the back of the house, the kitchen, the pantry, the coat room, the laundry room, so many shiny floors upon which little feet might create a thundering roar. 
They tripped up the back staircase to the servants' apartment and the sewing room, and thence onto the second floor where they found the studded trunks full of their clothes and toys awaiting magically in the nursery, beyond which extended a large sunlit playroom of their very own. Along the upstairs hall, they discovered door upon door, enclosing bedroom upon bedroom, and at the end, near the elaborate arced front staircase, their parents' room, a vastness of sky-blue carpet along which the tracks of the last vacuuming were still apparent. This master bedroom gave, through long and sparkling windows, onto the front garden and the drive, so that it held within it the constant murmur of the fountain, and beyond the walls, beyond the road and smaller houses so neatly arrayed, it gave onto the sea, no faint and tiny square barely glimpsed, but a glittering expanse across which ferries and little sailboats and occasional cargo ships skittered like insects. While the girls leaned that first time against the glass, pressing their small fingerprints into its perfect surface, their father moved in the adjoining bathroom, running the taps, and their mother stood behind them, one arm to her ribs, the other clasping a cigarette, staring also out of the window, saying nothing. It's really something, said her husband, emerging, rubbing his face with a plum-colored towel. We've moved up in the world, sweetie, that's for sure. We've moved to the end of the earth is what we've done, she replied, stubbing her cigarette in a small mosaic ashtray among the knickknacks on the dresser. What time is it in New York? It's yesterday, he said. Imagine that, like time travel. So we've lost a day, she said, gone from our lives, poof, like that. Where'd it go, Mom? asked the elder of her daughters, open-mouthed. Where does a day go without us? But her mother merely shrugged and left the room. Thanks, Claire. It's so wonderful to hear you read it out loud. You really bring that whole world of Sydney in the 70s alive. And I think the kind of the colours, the bright colours and the red begonias, for example, and the harbour and these garden parties that they throw. And I think it's so beautifully done because of your paired back writing and that that eye, that sharp eye. And it's also funny. <laughs> it's also really quite amusing at times. And part of that is is because these characters um, and Alice often deceive themselves, which which can be funny. But there's also a darker undercurrent there, isn't isn't, isn't there? Well, I, I'm very, always very interested in deception and self-deception, just as a lifelong thing. I mean, I, I think I look around, even even here in you know boring old Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, you see, so I have the fantasy that I live in. I live in pursuit of truth. That's my fantasy. <laughs> That's my self-deception, I guess. Um, but you see people who who imagine themselves as something, and and then they try to make it happen. And my question is always. Where, when does fantasy, when is it actually what keeps us alive, you know, keeps us excited and, and hopeful and engaged? And when, when does it become something pernicious mm. that is actually uh, hindering growth and duping people? And, and I think especially now, paradoxically, you know, much more than, than at that time, in the early 1970s, you know, there, there's a character in the housekeeper that I mentioned, her name is Simone Funk. And there's a lot that it isn't really possible to find out about her because there was no internet. There were telephones and, um, but you couldn't really track down people's past. People could invent and reinvent themselves. Um, and that was one thing, but I, but I feel that now there's a whole other version where you can have a life online that is entirely made of of fantasy and deception. Mm. And and so so I think it's shifted, but it it hasn't it's still a huge part of our our lives. Yeah. Mm, it really is. 
I think I think there's almost also in the way that you write it something almost kind of deliciously theatrical about it. Did it feel like that to you when you were writing it? Even when you mentioned when you say Simone Funk her name out loud, how did how did you find it writing it? I think I I wanted her to seem I'm I'm very fond of her as a character. I I wanted her to seem yeah flamboyant and larger than life, and I think they even accept that about her. They understand that you know she's she's telling Porky's. She's it isn't as she as she makes out, you know. And I think we all have known or at some point versions of that person who who just exaggerates a little bit or uh, you know tells other people's stories as if they had happened to them themselves, right? <laughs> like there are, It's true. Every child I know, for example, as well. Right, right. So <laughs> also does that. Does that. Yes, but adults, yes. But I feel like you don't you don't necessarily um resent it. You don't know. You I mean, there there are people who are sticklers who say, oh that's that's terrible. That's lying. But I think there's something exuberant and and sort of joyful mm. about it. Mm. About that way of living life of uh, you know, of of making everything sort of you said earlier, bright colors, about making your own life something filled with bright colors and and thrilling and exhilarating rather than than sort of small and drab. Mm. You know, and she's lovable. She's lovable. This character, isn't she? They've all got their foibles. That's what is so fascinating about them in this in novella. But they are lovable as well. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, she's she's warm and she's generous and she's. Mm. Um, I mean, I think. It's a, uh, these are real questions. Like I, I would say just from the outside that she's a good person. And the fact is, of course, you know, if you read the novella, you might feel she's not really, <laughs> she's not really a very good person. She does some things that are really, really not good person things to do. But from another angle, you know, she, she is, you know, she's somebody who brings sort of light and joy and, and love and warmth and whatever, you know, I mean, so I don't know, these things are complicated. I guess that's the thing I'm always committed to the fact that, that very few people are only one thing. Very few people are only evil or only good or only nice or only nasty. Mm -hmm. You know, most of us are some mix of those things, the balance of which may change at different moments. And I, I think this, this idea of complex characters does bring to mind that infamous interviewer who said that she wouldn't want to be friends with the main character Nora in your novel The Woman Upstairs <laughs> and I have to read some of your fabulous response which is so spot on and it's always relevant I think and you said for heaven's sake what kind of question is that would you want to be friends with Humbert Humbert and you go on to mention various characters Hamlet, Crap, Oedipus, Oscar Wilde, Antigone, Raskolnikov, any of the characters in The Corrections, any of the characters in Infinite Jest, any of the characters in anything Pynchon has ever written. Um, and then you say, if you're reading to find friends, you're in deep trouble. We read to find life in all its possibilities. The relevant question isn't, is this a potential friend for me, but is this character alive? I do believe that very passionately. It's just always so relevant, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, I don't know whether it's the same in Australia, but I think that sometimes in American culture, there is a, I think of it as quite puritanical. There's a conflation of fiction with some sort of moral rectitude <laughs> and that it should, you know, teach us to be good people. It's hard to understand, isn't it? It's a confusing, I find it baffling. Well, I, I find it especially baffling because we all know that people who are sort of piously good 
are no fun to be with and and not interesting, right? (laughs) So so why would you hold them up, you know, in fiction when you don't hold them up in? I find it all very confusing, frankly. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Now, we haven't spoken much about how long you spent in Sydney and, and those years for you in, in Sydney as a child. Can you, can you describe that a little bit more fully as this novella was inspired by your time in Sydney as a child, of course? So almost my first memories are in Sydney. We, we moved there when I was, I guess, four going on five. I, I turned five not long after we got there. And, um, well, as, as you know, it's a great place to be a kid. Um, it was a very happy time in our lives and in our family's uh, life um, for all sorts of reasons. You know, I think in a, in a way that, that, I mean, I don't know what it would be like, would have been like to go to school in, in North America at that moment, but going to school, you know, I went to a school in Sydney where we wore uniforms down to our knickers and <laughs> we wore hats, you know, and we, whenever you were in the street, you, you had to have your hat on and you weren't supposed to eat in uniform. And, um, it's still the same. There's a lot of schools still like that. That still do that. And Mm -hmm. when a teacher came into the room, you had to stand up and, you know, it was, it maybe sounds crazy, but, but that intense structure, we loved it. My sister and I, we adored our teachers. We adored our school. We, you know, sang the school song with incredible passion and heart. You know, I mean, we were too young, I guess, to be resentful. If we'd stuck through adolescence, we might have kicked a little strongly, more strongly (laughs) against it. But but it was a wonderful structure and it felt, uh, it felt, yeah, very supportive. There were a lot of rules, but that was okay. And then, and then of course, to be somewhere that was beautiful, a city that's so beautiful, uh, to go swimming after school. They're just small things that people growing up in Australia probably don't think too much about, but mm. but uh, it's an incredible gift. The light, the air, the, mm. the birds, you know, just amazing. Mm. Back to um, the character of Alice, w- was she in part inspired by your own mother? Yes, I think it, it's a reconstruction of my mother. You know, I was a I was a little kid, so I I don't. I mean, I remember her as my mother, and 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 in writing the novella, I was trying to imagine the woman, not necessarily specifically my mother, but but a woman in that situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it, as kids, we didn't think anything of it. You know, it just as I was saying earlier, when you're little, whatever happens is just your life; it just happens. Uh, but when I, when I grew up and I thought, wow, it, it's a big thing. It's one thing to choose, right? To choose to have agency and choose, I'm going to move to a new country. Mm. And it's another thing in, in a sort of traditional patriarchal household to be basically told we are now moving to another country mm. and, and not, you don't have a job, you don't earn money, you don't have a say. Um, your job is making sure the family's okay. That's your job. And you do that wherever the family goes. Mm. And that was true for millions of women. You write so beautifully about how your mother formed you, particularly through her books and reading in in your collection of essays. And you say it was in your mother's footsteps that you eagerly, unthinkingly followed. Um, Tell me about what you learned from your mother, um, what she taught you. Well, Gosh, how long have we got? Um, you know, that's a big question. But it, but I certainly think in 
um, my mother, both my parents were big readers, but my mom was a big reader of fiction and, you know, she handed books to me and, or left books out that I picked up and, and her, her shape of the, the literary world that she loved was the literary world that I learned about first. So I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even know they were the women's studies curriculum as, <laughs> right? Like they were just books, the books that my mother loved and that I loved and, it was only later that I that I discovered that not everybody was reading them. Mm. What well, you, you say at one point, but perhaps most influential for me in those teenage years was my mother's love of Jean Reese. Well, um, I think for me, so there are various things. You know, my Paris has come up earlier. So we would go, when we went to visit my French relatives, we would travel through. They were not in Paris, but we would travel through Paris, and and so I had I had from very early memories of a Paris that always seemed to me the most beautiful and wonderful and exciting city in the world, and where I wanted to be. But I didn't really know what that would be like if you weren't a, a sort of kid holding your parents' hands. Mm. And then I, you know, but by, by the time I was given Jean Reese, I was a, a teenager in touch with my dark side, <laughs> and um, the sort of dark the dark and isolation and striving in those Jean Reese novels. You know, these women who are so fundamentally alone uh, and they don't have, they don't have resources and they don't have, um, there's a lot they don't have. They don't have family. They, they're in a sort of artistic life in exile, you know, as expatriates mm-hmm. in France. That, that was very, um, was just very moving to me and very compelling, uh, I reread Quartet not long ago. I was invited to do an introduction for a new edition, and and it was just as powerful for me as it was when I read it, you know, all those years ago for the first time. Oh, that's good to hear because often it changes quite a lot, doesn't it, when you read a, a novel or a, a different book years down the track? Totally, and some things really date, you know. Some things you think, oh, but, but with Quartet, which is about her relationship with Ford Maddox Ford and his, I, were they married, Stella Bowen was his partner at the time. Mm. And, um, and so that's, she's, she's writing about basically being kind of exploited by them and abused in a way, sort of almost abused by them. But, but it's, she's very precise and honest about emotion and the complexity of it and the fact that it doesn't fit into neat little boxes. So you can understand that somebody is being awful to you and you still desire them. Mm. You know, you still want them. And that that might not be what we would wish, <laughs> but it's what life is like. So in that sense, it's because she's very frank, I think, about about complex emotions that that her work lasts. Mm-hmm. What about the line between reality and your imagination in your fiction more generally? Um, I imagine with every book you write, it's very different, and whatever that kind of base spark is that catalyzes the desire to write about a subject. How do you kind of how do you balance that? Yeah, I you know I think I've never written anything. I mean, there's there are some autobiographical facts in this in this novella. The house is based on the house that we rented when we first arrived. Um, but mo- for the most part, my work has not been autobiographical, and and I think I think of it as or only elements have. So it's almost mm. like a hanger, a coat hanger on which you make papier mâché. Oh, that's a lovely description. Mm. If you have too much information, if something's, for me at least, if something's too close to life, then I don't feel free. Mm. 
But once uh, when he was visiting a class I was teaching, Colm Tribune said, you can make up the characters or you can make up the plot, but you can't make up both. Mm. And, and, and I've wondered ever since, is that true? Is that really true? I don't know if that's true, but, but it's certainly um, fiction like life is a balance of freedom and constraint. And I think you do need some constraints. And I at least, you know, I find certain, certain, certain outlines prove fruitful for me, but I can't have too much. And another way of putting it, um, I think of it as almost, it's like you raise reality up on a pallet. Mm. Um, so that it's just a few inches above the ground and that, that dis I mean, some people writing science fiction or set in, you know, set in fantasy worlds, they're raising it, not on a pallet, but on a way up high on a plinth, but you need that little fiction gives you that little leeway to change things, you know, mm. um, and to be free and to alter the composition so that I mean, you're aiming for something hopefully that's humanly true and the outlines of reality don't always helpfully correspond. You wrote in Kant, in your book of essays, I'll just call it Kant for short, about your childhood friend Jane, it's not her name, of course, who was in Sydney. I imagine friendship was also something that was such a strong thing at that back at that age. And another essay within within this book of essays is about your daughter Livia's really difficult, isolating experience at school. Um, and some of these subjects come up in The Burning Girl, just that deeply complicated period of adolescence. Such big subjects, Claire, really brought it all back. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> and <laughs> in, in that novel and also in the essay, you kind of describe children dealing with the best and the worst of life, really, kind of in a very intense fashion. And also parents not always being able to protect their children. Oh, that was devastating hearing about how you couldn't do anything about it because that would make it worse. The the kind of you can't. No. You're not. You you know. You, the minute the a parent steps in, then that that just makes it makes it worse. But that's because that's what that time is about is figuring it out on your own. Mm. And I think that is the shift from. I always think that's the shift from childhood to adolescence. Is you know in childhood, however weird your life is, you just take it. You take it as it comes because it's your life, you know, and you don't know that other people's lives are different. And then there's some moment where, you you know, you go to somebody else's house for a sleepover and you're like, wow, this is, this house is, this household's really different from mine. So are they normal or are, are we normal <laughs> yeah. or who's, who's weird and what's weird? And, and, and then these, the years, you know, from sort of 10 to 15, longer, you know, give or take could be, I don't know, eight to 17, whatever, but are about figuring out who you might be in relation to the world, mm. as opposed to just within the enclosure of your family. Mm -hmm. And that's tough. Yeah, it's just, it just felt very painful, painful kind of from various people's perspective, I could feel it. And even, and I kind of, I put myself in there, my daughter's only three. I know. But it's going to happen, you know. But, you know, I, I mean, it happens differently. I mean, there's so many things to say about that. It happens differently for every person, of course. And I think also it, I, I do, to some extent, um, think these things are are cultural and about expectations. And, you know, I'm always interested. I, I don't think, I always wonder, like, in Italy, for example, I don't get the sense that rebellion is automatic, you know? I feel as though that that seems to be a culture where intergenerational conversation 
or or maybe not conversation, but that people seem to ride that time often more smoothly. I don't know. I, I, I know that, you know, it, it is an, um, certainly a North American self-understanding and, and kind of cultural drama that you'd be, as it were, a rebel with or without a cause. Mm. And I just think that, again, that awareness of, of the darkness um, and children aren't immune to that, it's it's very present. Yeah. You know, the nastiness, the, the cruelty is, is present even at yes. those young ages. Um, now, did Livia read the novel or the essay or how how do you juggle, how, how does people in the family, do they read your work, do you not show them? Do they not want to read it? <laughs> what happens? So, by and large, I don't. Th- I don't think any. I don't think either of my kids has read anything else. But I did ask Livia to read. She she read the essay before it was published because it mentioned her. So mm-hmm. I gave it to her and made sure she felt okay about it. Um, How did she feel about it, Claire? Well, I, you know, it's interesting because at the time she was um, already several years older than when the events happened. But I, but now she's twenty. And I think she, you know, she might, so let me do the math. She was about 16 then, or 15 even. And I think at 15, she thought of herself as grown up, but she wasn't fully. And and now if she were to reread it, at the time, I think she was, she was excited to be mentioned in print. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that now she might think, you know, mom, I mean, I haven't asked, I haven't asked her again, but Mm. she might not feel so, uh, she might have different feelings about it. I, I think, um, but the novel, uh, she was a great reader for the novel because I could ask her, Does, is this something you think people would say or kids would say to each other? Or is this how people would react? And, and she was, you know, she was pretty, mom, nobody would ever say that. Mom, change this. You know, that was, she, that was very useful. So, so later when a couple of people said, well, what does Claire Masood know about teenagers? I was like, well, you're 28 reviewer. Maybe I know more than you <laughs> because you, because I had a, you know, I had a spy. Your aunt, Tante Denise, also formed you and your description of her is so very vivid in this book of essays, which in a way is, is like an intimate history of family. To me, there's so much kind of there's so many wonderful descriptions of different characters in your family. Could you also read a little extract about her? Sure, sure. Um, oh, I'm going to start with the, the word drunk, but my Tontanese was for most of my life never drunk. It was only after many losses after she, because she uh, took care of her parents, my grandparents, and it was only after they had both died that she as they used to say, took to drink. Um, this this little section is about my Tontinese in, in her later years. Drunk, Denise became greedy, garrulous, avid. When we were away, she kept count of how long since we'd visited, and a few drinks in would throw out the exact tally in a stringent reproach. She quarreled with lifelong friends, taking issue with their inconstancy, their insufficient attention. When we were there, she'd force our arms around her neck, pull us close, plant loud, soggy kisses on our cheeks, rumbling in our ears in her raspy Louis Armstrong fag end of a voice in a fug of tobacco smoke. French Marigny had with time turned to Marlboro Reds. 
Scrawny in age and haggard, she developed particular tics when drunk, a way of tucking her hands into her waistband and rocking back and forth in unseemly pelvic thrusts, a way of thoughtlessly licking her forefinger, then pawing with the saliva at a raw red patch on her face, a way of grinding her loose lips, ruminating almost, so that you couldn't ignore the prominent teeth behind them. Her pale blue eyes, always watery behind their thick glasses, grew filmy and red-rimmed and frightened and sad. Repelled by her, we were also guilty, even loving in our repulsion. Tontanese became a doppelganger, a part of me that I feared, abhorred, accepted, and defended in equal measure. God forbid we should end up like Tontanese, pauvre Denise. She was our Christian test, or one of them. Mad, pathetic, noble, generous, oppressive, funny, deluded, brave, so lonely, and trying, always trying, until she couldn't try anymore. In her ignominious last years of her naked, drunken self, I was reminded always of Jane Bowles' character, Mrs. Copperfield, who wants to drink gin until she can roll around on the floor like a baby. Being a woman was too difficult. In the end, maybe all along, Denise wanted only to renounce. And would you like me to stop there or did you want me to go on? Could you go on a little bit, Claire? Because I think the contrast with your mother and your mother's character is so well drawn. Okay. My mother's set of life rules, on the other hand, was that of a Protestant Anglophile with social aspirations in the Toronto of her youth. Effortless superiority and keen wit were de rigueur, You were supposed to be beautiful, or not if you weren't, without making a fuss about it. Wear practical, sturdy shoes, get straight A's without being seen to work. You were to be always polite and, when necessary or even amusing, cutting in your politesse. Gentle and considerate, even passive by nature, Margaret had nevertheless developed the sharp sharp tongue her adolescent milieu, a private girls' school, had required, and often spoke like a character out of Antony Pohl or Muriel Spark. Of a college friend of mine, she memorably said after the girl's one visit, I've never met such a non-entity. I kept forgetting she was in the car. Insecurity could make her mean. Matters superficial got under her skin. She envied her friends, their mink coats, their Caribbean vacations, their husbands' deaths. She enlisted us, her daughters, as her defenders in arguments with her, our father and raised us to understand that her life had been ruined by a marriage by marriage to a man who didn't support her liberation or believe in her capabilities. Never, never be financially dependent on a man, she would hiss, or because she felt our father dismissed her intellect, never, ever marry anyone who isn't as smart as you are. I've wasted my life on his dirty socks, she said. Don't ever get stuck like me. (laughs) Thanks, Claire. It's so interesting reading all of these because you can see different parts of yourself, as you say, the different characters that have really kind of formed you or influenced you in different ways. And I wonder if if language has also played that role. Well, informing me? I think language forms all of us. And and, and also kind of creating different parts of yourself in these languages. Yes. You know, I mean, well, there, I feel that there are so many things to say to that. One is, you know, one has a different self in each language. So, so there's a, there's a French self and there's an English speaking self. There, there Mm. used to be when I was, when I was a child in Australia, we would speak, my, our our parents would say that we would speak to our friends with Australian accents in the back of the car. And then, you know, (laughs) if our mother called to us in the front, we'd turn and speak to her with an American accent. But, but I think, you know, all of the, the way that we learn language and interact with language completely, uh, 
forms and shapes us. And I love the idea that, I mean, it also creeps me out, but but that artificial intelligence, you know, that a computer could basically tell a sentence of yours, distinguish a sentence of yours from a sentence of mine, um, simply in its rhythms and syntax, uh, mm. and the length of the sentences and the type of the diction, you know, type of diction that, that each of us would choose, that, that it would be like a fingerprint, you know, if you, if you did a, a full analysis, that each of us has our own language and relationship to it. Yeah. Mm. It's almost like when when you wrote about about your father and the memory that different languages evoked for him as well. Um, you spoke about his longing for prayers in French specifically, as they only had meaning for him in that language. But then in another section as well, what hearing mass in Latin and that association did for him, um, as it was the last time he'd had a country and a religion when he heard that, um, and it just made me think about language in a different way, almost like one of our senses, um, evoking kind of memory like a smell would, for example. Yes. And, you know, mm. you, you were asking earlier about my grandfather's memoir and, and reading it. And I've had people ask me, because obviously it's in French, and people have said to me, oh, do you, do you find the French difficult? And, and the answer is no, because I was formed in my grandfather's French. So the rhythms and the diction, there's barely a word, you know, there are lots of words in French that I would have to look up, but in my grandfather's 1500 pages, there's barely a one because mm. my French is his French. My, my rhythms in French are his rhythms. You know, that's the la- that's the French that I know. That's the French that I learned. And, and I think it, you know, it's a fairly old fashioned, <laughs> old fashioned French, but for me, it's like, it's, it fits me like a glove. Um, and, and so for me, it's, it's, there's the pleasure when I read it, not just of, of learning about their past, but of, of really feeling that I'm with him, Mm. of hearing his voice and, and the consolation, you know, having my whole youth brought back to me, not just the facts of their lives before I was born, but, but themselves, Mm. it's a sort of an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just talk, just staying with the the different characters in your life. Um, there's there's someone else that you thank actually at the end of your book of essays, and, and that person is um, among many others is is Bob Silvers. He was such an icon in the publishing industry. Um, the editor of the New York Review of Books, of course. Can you share your memories of of him and what it was like working with him? You know. The thing is, I was always so awed by him. I, I think there were people who lived in New York and, and had lunch with him and were good friends with him. And I was, um, I did not live in New York and, and I was timid. And so I probably met him in person only about half a dozen times, I'd say. Um, and always with great exhilaration. But, but you know, it's, we didn't sit down. We never, I never had a meal with him. Um, I had a meal with, I had more than one meal with Barbara Epstein, his, his co-founder, colleague and co-founder when she was alive. Um, but I, I, you know, I didn't ever have a long conversation with, with Bob. So for me, he wasn't an editor, you know, he was extraordinary. (laughs) Um, he was very precise. He was very smart and thoughtful. He would call, he would call it, 10 o'clock on a Sunday night oh. um, to go over to go over something. And what you understood was 
he was working at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. So (laughs) why weren't you? Um, (laughs) Or so should you. Um, But he was also incredibly, um, he was very formal and he was very gracious. And um, I think, you know, to me, uh, and he was very discreet and sort of modest. So I remember uh, at one point he we were working, you know, editing a piece and, and he mentioned, he said, I'll be out of the office for a couple of days. I'm, I'm going to be actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I, and I was, um, tempted to ask, you know, well, would you have time for coffee? But I was too afraid. And I thought, well, he, if he had time to have coffee with me, he'd say, would you like to have coffee at this moment? Which he did not. So I said, okay, of course, you know, we'll speak when you get back to the office. And only, only when he got back to the office, you know, I guess it happened the day before he got back to the office, did I realize that he was receiving an honorary degree <laughs> from Harvard University? But but he, you know, many many people would say, "I'm I'm coming up to Cambridge to receive an honorary degree." Yeah, <laughs> but, but he just said, "I'm you know I'm actually uh, coming up," and he and I'm trying to yeah, he just said, "I'm coming up to Cambridge," and um, so there were many uh, instances. But but a thing that was very moving to me, um, I wrote a piece. I wrote a piece about uh, Camus. For the New York Review, that's in the book, mm-hmm. uh, Little Prussian Head, and and he, of course, was uh, young at the time of the uh, Algerian independence movement, and and he was studying in Paris, and he uh, knew a lot of freedom fighters, not just from the FLN, but from other groups. He knew a lot of the players in from that time, and he, in fact, edited an anthology of writings about the French the French torture uh, of people. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That was fascinating. And yeah, mm. and so so he, when I was working on this piece, he sent me uh, a number of books, including what was obviously his copy of that anthology oh. to work with so that I had them, you know, and, and, and with some sort of rue, when I finished the piece, I packed the books up. I wrapped that one carefully in, in tissue paper and I packed the books up and I sent them back to him. Mm. And, and without ever saying anything, um, he sent that book back again. Oh, did he? And I can't tell you how meaningful it was, but also how awkward because I, because he didn't include a note or anything. Mm. And then I, I didn't know how to sort of take it. Mm. I didn't know whether it was a, I worried that it had been a mistake <laughs> that somebody had sent it back to me by like somebody in the office who wasn't him had sent it back to me by mistake. Mm. Did you ever speak to him about it? And I never spoke to him about it. And and I spoke to mm. Ray Hederman who, who owns the, who owns the magazine mm. as a publisher. I spoke to him after Bob died. And I said, you know, I told this story and he said, Oh, I, I know that book. It was always on his desk. Oh. And so that was, that was when I knew that he had meant for me to have it. And, um, and it's one of those moments where I feel that my, um, my own anxieties and reservations and timorousness and uncertainties, you know, really were a problem Mm. (laughs) because I, you know, I, 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 I didn't properly thank him. Can you share anything about what you're working on now, Claire? I'm, I'm working on something that is inspired by or born out of my, my grandfather's memoir and and oh and people people have said oh are you, why not edit that and publish it but of course you know it's very very long and it's also very specifically written to my sister and me mm. it's not that I'm it's just a springboard you know I'm sort of taking 
taking a couple of moments from from that. Mm. You know what I was saying about the sort of the the coat hanger and the paper mache. So I'm I'm taking a couple of moments uh, from that narrative and 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 kind of embarking on a separate thing. How did your grandfather and your mother feel about your writing? Were they very proud of you? Um, I think they were happy. I think for my grandfather who who saw things in very much in familial terms and in also in terms one might say of longue durée of the long term he um you know he came from very humble circumstances and uh his mother was a school teacher an elementary school teacher he was the youngest of four children his father abandoned the family when my grandfather was 8 mm. um and he was very successful at school and the french system enabled him to be, to sort of reach levels, you know, a sort of upper middle class level in society that, that in many places would, at the time, would not have been possible. And he was very aware of that and very grateful. And I think he felt that, that then my, but he, but he never had two beans to rub together. And I, and then, you know, my father, after being a student for a very long time, went into business. And, and so our lives were materially much more comfortable than my, father's life in childhood, say. Mm. And I think my grandfather felt it wasn't something I did to just become a writer. It was something that all the generations did, um, you know, that a family is is evolving and every, I mean, he said, you know, everybody, each generation has the responsibility to move the family forward. And that, and that you know, he had... He said that in his memoir, did he? No, he said it to us in person. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think you know his feeling was his grandparents on his mother's side were illiterate, mm. so you know his mother was an elementary school teacher, and then he went to Polytechnique and was in the French Navy, and then was a businessman, and albeit not a very successful one, and and then my father you know traveled the world, you know the, the, there was this sort of um, moving things moving things along, mm. yeah, mm. That it, and 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 I sort of like you know we live in in, in such individualist times. But I'm sort of moved by the idea of a of generations in uh, all linked together. Mm. Your mother, how what, how did she respond? Being such a great reader um, herself, how did how has she responded over the years? Um, you know, she I think she was pleased, and of course I'm I, I married. I know she was pleased, and I married. I always used to joke that my parents loved my husband more than they loved me because um, oh. he was a writer, you know, and he was British yeah. with that lovely accent. And, um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it was, it was very thrilling to her that I was leading a sort of some version of a literary life. Yeah. I think it was, it was quite, um, after my parents died, I, you know, you have to empty out their place and, in her clothes cupboard up on a shelf, there was a, a, a plastic box with every review I, I'd ever received and probably every review I'd ever written and every flyer for any reading I'd ever given. And mm. maybe I shouldn't have, but I but I threw it all away because I, oh. I said to James, nobody cares now, you know. She was the one, they, my father too, they were the ones who... And there's, that's a strange thing about losing your parents, you know, is that you realize, mm. oh, so much you were doing for them, you know. And they, they're the ones that have that special that special care. Yeah. That's that's beautiful to hear, though, that she that she kept all 
all of your reviews and everything that she <laughs> she read. Yeah. I wonder if she was, did she speak to you about it at the time much? We would talk about things. She was, she was, um, you know, in the way of, in the way of parents, she had a sort of atavistic. Uh, if anybody said, if anybody wrote a, uh, you know, if anybody said a word against something, she didn't like them. But it's nice to have it's, Good. <laughs> it's nice to have someone someone on your side that yeah, way. You know, that's true. Yeah. Oh, Claire, thank you so much for today's conversation. I've so loved speaking with you, and I could have gone off on many other different tangents. I had to rein myself in at every turn. Um, and I'm so honoured to be publishing uh, your beautiful novella, A Dream Life. Oh, thank you, Gemma. Thank you so much. This has been such a treat. And as you know, I'm just over the moon about about the fact that you're publishing A Dream Life. It's just marvellous. So. Oh, thanks, Claire. And, and for everyone listening, um, A Dream Life is part of a short book series that Tableau Tales is publishing alongside Lauren Elkin's Parisian Bus Diary, um, and also there will be a new book by Leanne Shapton that is coming out, which is very exciting. Um, and one thing we didn't talk about in our conversation is is that Claire is very generously donating all profits of her book to Wires um, here in Australia. Thank you, Claire. Oh, thank you, Gemma. 